creative journey It's easy to get lost But don't worry, you'll lift off Sometimes you just need a creative pep talk Hey, you're listening to Creative Pep Talk, a weekly podcast companion for your creative journey. I'm your host, Andy J. Pizza. I'm a New York Times bestselling author and illustrator. Whether I'm illustrating for clients like Apple or Xbox or creatively pep talking folks at places like Warby Parker and Sesame Street, I aim to make stories that make people want to say yes to life. I'm also ADHD, and that means it takes a whole lot of creativity just to get by in this life, and this show is just me sharing all the stuff that seems to be helping me do just that in hopes that it might help you live a more creative life too. All right, let's go. This episode, we are going to explore what to do when you find yourself in a place where you can't find the motivation to do the work. Part of it is that you don't even think the work that you're doing will work. Um... How does it work? I know not, my lead. We'll get you anywhere you want to go, and you're just stuck not even knowing which work to do, and it's just generally lost its appeal and its zest. If that's you, this episode is for you. We're going to talk about which of the crucial, 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 I got crucial, which of the crucial seven stages of a thriving creative practice are you stuck on. And if you stick to the end of the episode, I'm going to talk about how to gain the kind of 10 true fans that can be the seed that you could build an entire dream creative practice on and can even become a creative movement of sorts if you know how to approach it. All right, that's you. Let's get into it. really needed to rehaul my website. I was talking to some web people, looking around, and I got intrigued by Squarespace's new fluid engine, partially because it just sounds cool, but also because it allows you to drag and resize and layer up anything you can imagine. I dove in, rebuilt my site. It's the most me site that I've ever had. I just absolutely love it. Launched it. Got such a great response. Some industry illustration and designy peers even reached out and was like, hey, who coded this thing, man? I'm like, y'all, I did it by myself. No coding with Squarespace's new Fluid Engine. I told him, like, you should go check it out. You're going to be surprised with what you can do. And I built this thing before Squarespace reached out to sponsor the show. So I was like, boom, easy peasy. I was going to tell you about this new site. Anyway, go check it out, AndyJPizza.com if you want to see what I did with it. If you want to try it yourself, make a site that's totally you where you can build a portfolio, sell content and courses and all kinds of other stuff, head to squarespace.com for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain with promo code PEPTALK, all one word, all uppercase. This episode is supported by In The Making, an original podcast brought to you by Adobe Express, the all-in-one content creation app included in your Creative Cloud membership. If you are trying to boost the YouTube, TikTok, Reels content side of what you're doing, one episode of In The Making that I think will be super useful to you is their episode with John Yushai. 
I think John's method for including his audience in the process is really inspiring. And if you want to hear about that and more about leveling up your game in the creator economy, just search In The Making in your podcast player to listen. Many thanks to In The Making and Adobe Express for their support. Have you ever gotten to that place where the creative practice has just lost its appeal? Whatever work you're doing, maybe it's even worse than that. You know, there were times I've been making this show for coming up on nine years. And there were times where I would come into the podcast booth and it wouldn't just be unappealing. There would be a pang of anxiety or like dread. And we all get into those zones in our creative practice at one time or another. And so what do you do when the thing that you used to enjoy has lost its meaning? You know, cooking is monotonous. Making money, collecting the coins have lost their shine. You're seeking out new tools, but that just doesn't seem fun anymore. Fighting the next creative battle is just uninteresting. Helping new clients with their side requests is not interesting. And it's just kind of lost all its shininess. What do you do when this life is no longer epic in the way that it used to be? You know, I've been playing the new Zelda, Tears of the Kingdom, uh, really enjoying that, really taking my time with the process this time around because this experience had happened to me in the last game, Breath of the Wild, Zelda Breath of the Wild. It's like an RPG open world game if you're not familiar with it. And there came a time playing that game where the cooking in the game became monotonous. The collecting rupees had just lost their shine. Seeking new weapons was no longer fun. Fighting battles had no urgency. Helping those NPCs with their side quests wasn't interesting anymore. It just had lost all of its appeal. And it wasn't that there was anything wrong with the game. The game was epic, but it didn't feel like it anymore. And the reason was because I'd already beat that game. I already had defeated the main boss. And when I had done that, the side quests weren't as fun. They weren't as juicy as they used to be because you don't just need side quests. You need a main quest. And I have found looking back when I don't have a sense of what the main quest is in the game that I'm currently playing in my creative practice, I lose interest. What is the next major domino that if I knock over, all the other dominoes will knock over or be easier to knock over? You know, we are like characters in a story. We need direction. We need to know what do we want? What need are we trying to fulfill? And I've found that when I start to feel like that lull is setting in and I'm losing interest and I'm having a harder time getting out of bed, it's usually because I either don't know what I want or the thing that I want, I don't think I have it within me to take the actions that will actually get me any closer to it. It's I'm, I'm going after something that I can't achieve, that I can't make progress in, or I can't believe that I can make progress in. And so when I find myself in that place, I realize I'm not content to just 
go about doing little side quests. I need to have a bigger purpose of where this is going. And so if you are in a place where you've lost the creative motivation, if you're even worse, you feel a pang of anxiety or dread when you think about picking up the pencil or picking up the guitar, it might be because you are not on a main quest that you believe in your bones you can fulfill. And so you need to stop everything, put everything on pause. Don't take on another side quest from those NPCs. Don't go just sharpen your weapons or whatever. You need to pause and shut everything down. And you need to, if you are in that place and you don't have a main quest, the first thing you need to do is to find your main quest. That's your main quest right now is to find the quest. You know, I read this book by Lisa Miller. She's a PhD. She teaches at an Ivy League school. I think it's Columbia. And she teaches psychology, but she also teaches spirituality. And she actually goes into how I was blown away because this whole podcast has been about the creative journey. A lot of it's about likening the creative path to the hero's journey because that mindset of breaking things down into stages saved my creative practice because it was no longer I need to skip to the end and achieve the goal and slay the dragon and get the elixir now or I can't get motivated and it was no right now I'm in the belly of the whale right now I need to find the mentor right now I need to find the peers that can help me like I could break it down into those little chunks in each chunk became my main quest until I got through that phase and I don't even think I said it so apologies for this but In that book, she has a book called The Awakened Mind, and it is about the power that we can see that spirituality has on the brain. And one whole chapter is about questing. It's about a journey mentality about how if you see your life as a journey and you're looking for the thread and you're looking for the next thing and you're trying to figure out the next piece that the universe has for you, it does amazing things to your mental health. And I was like, I didn't need that affirmation or proof because it's been true in my own creative practice. Uh, but it was incredible to see that the research is proving that out as well. So if you are stuck in the monotonous, if your creative practice has lost its zeal and you don't have a main quest, your main quest right now is to find your main quest. And we're going to go through these and they're going to be in order as I, I've tried to build it, build it so that You know, if you have a main quest, you already know that, you move on to number two. And if you have number two, you move on to number three. But if you don't have number two, you got to stay there until you get to number three. And so they're supposed to kind of work in order. But that's the first one. Okay, number two. If you have a main quest, you know what you're after, creatively speaking, whether that is an achievement or it's a creative achievement within the work itself. If you know what that is, the second thing is to identify the consistent value that you're going to provide in your creative work. It's about consistency and being consistent. Can't operate at a higher level without consistency. And what I mean by this is a probably a feeling 
That's one of the things that people come to creative work for. Now, it can be a lot of different things. It could be to learn something. It could be to collect something. It could be to bond with other people in a community. All those things are true. But you can probably boil it down to a feeling that you want your audience to experience. And that becomes your creative goal. And your job is to reverse engineer how do you produce that kind of feeling within your audience? You know, if it's a, if you want them to laugh, you need to learn the mechanics of a joke. And there are a bunch of different options, but you can go research and read and deconstruct your favorite creators and figure out what are the core elements the pieces, what are the mechanics of how this works? If you want to make them feel meaning, you know, for me, I want to make stories that make people say yes to life. That's, that is just what I'm all about because those are the stories that keep me going. Those that in my life, I kind of think of story as kind of my religion. It's like the framework, like stories and and every religion is based on story. Also, um, it's the kind of stories that make you say, I want to lean into this life. I want to lean into being on this planet because it's worth it, because it's interesting, because it's exciting, because it's meaningful. Stories that do that, what happens when you encounter that kind of story? What happens? Usually you well up with tears. So that's what I, that's what I want. I want to make stories like that that make you say, yes, I, I'm engaged because it's a posture in life. And so I have taken the stories that, I love the most and I've tried to reverse engineer. How do you produce that feeling? What are the basic elements? Because there are mechanics to that. It might be you want people to get angry about injustice. Well, how do you do that? It's not just tell them the facts. You actually have to tell them a story. You actually have to figure out what are the pieces that produce that emotion. How do you get people to feel empathy? How do, they, how do they feel for other people's experiences that are different than theirs? You know, I've listened to stories and encountered images, encountered pictures that have made me feel empathy for others. And the artists that get really, really good at that, that can produce that consistent value because they understand how it's done, that's what you can build a whole creative practice on. And so the next thing you need to do is figure out what value am I trying to produce? Who produces that kind of value? Deconstruct how they do it. Go find critics and people that analyze the work and break it down and tell you how to actually go do it. Go on YouTube and look up how to write a joke. Go look on YouTube, story structure. Go look on YouTube, like go read a book about how these things get constructed. But you have to know what kind of feeling you're trying to produce. And then you have to know how to actually do it and start making it a practice to practice producing that feeling in other people, trying out a bunch of different types of mechanics and putting your own spin on it, putting your own voice and and experiences into that and even setting it to your particular taste because the way that people have done it in the past isn't going to be micro tuned into your taste. And your job is to say, I liked how these things were done, but for me, it would have been even better if it ended this way, if they cut out that section, if they highlighted this bit and brought more of 
that trope into it, right? Like that's your job is to critique through the creation closer and closer so that if you encountered it, your eyes would well up even more. You'd maybe sob if it was correct. You'd, you'd die laughing if it was tweaked this way. And so the second thing, if you have a main quest, you know, this is what I want to do creatively. Second thing is you say, what is the value that, that can achieve that quest? What is the value that I want to consistently produce in my work? And it might be a couple different things. You can think of those feelings as different colors in your palette. But either way, you need to have some understanding of how the brain works and what produces some of those feelings. Okay, the third thing is to find your people. Find the people that are making that kind of consistent value. Who is able to produce that kind of laugh or that kind of heartfelt moment or that anger or incite this curiosity in you? Who are the, especially the peers that have a sense of a little bit how to do that? You need FaceTime with those people. You need to collaborate with those people. I am a strong believer that in a way you are who you meet in the same way that you are what you eat. Like you are a sum of the people that you spend time with. And so you need to make it a top priority to go to the conferences, join the online communities, engage in those places. If you do that, if you start creating in those spaces with other people that are trying to produce the same sorts of creative values that you are, all of a sudden it won't be as much about making a sale. It won't be as much about getting some accolade. It will be sufficient just to be in the arena, chopping it up with people who are like-minded. If you are behind the curtain in the green room at the comedy club, talking about pontificating about this joke, uh, you know, getting notes on it, talking about creative philosophy around the practice that you love the most, you are going to feel so much joy that it's already going to be a success, let alone you're going to get so much insight that you're going to get that much better. And I am a strong believer that it's almost like a spiritual thing if it wasn't just so practical that when you meet something that is able to do what you aspire to do, it unlocks in you the humanity to do it. It's that whole idea we've explored in the past where meeting your creative gods, yes, it takes away their deification, their uh, deity quality, but it also imbues some of that godlike humanity in you because you're able to see like if they're human, then I could do this too. And when I met the first full-time illustrator when I was at college, that I'd ever met. The next day, we launched a magazine that was responsible for getting us our first jobs because we were just like, this person is a human. And I think if you want to find the opportunities, if you want to find how to produce the kind of work you want to produce, if you want to get the connections and you want to do the collaborations that help your work get discovered, there is nothing like Finding your people. My people. And so spend your money and your resources and your time trying to have FaceTime with the people that are on the same quest that you're on. All right, number four is the spaghetti on the wall. Spaghetti! 
Okay. You got to find your opportunity. You got to fine tune your ability to do it. It's not enough to just know the consistent value, know the people that are doing it and spend time with them and just soaking it up all the time. Just wait until you're ready. No, you've got to start throwing stuff at the wall. You got to start trying and failing in public. And if there's one thing that I love about the online algorithms is it means that almost certainly no one's going to see your bad work. Now, I'm not saying the algorithm is such that it's definitely going to show people your good work, but it's really unlikely to show your bad work. And so there's nothing wrong with trying a bunch of different things, trying a bunch of different methods to produce the kind of feelings that you're after before you commit to a practice and a habit and a a longer term personal project like when I started this podcast, I knew I was going to do 100 episodes before I gave up. I knew that meant two plus years of podcasting, no matter who was listening to it, uh, of doing this show. And I was ready to do that because I'd already thrown tons and tons of spaghetti at the wall. I'd already tried something about the last time I said throwing spaghetti on the wall just sounded really gross. I just, I hated it. Uh, Just there's something about spaghetti all over your wall. Uh, It's not, it's not a good feeling. Who's going to clean that up? Every time I was watching a movie as a kid and they were doing a food fight, I was like, somebody's actually got to clean this up. Is anybody thinking of that person? And I was getting stressed out. It's not, you know, oh man, it's a lot of, a lot of, childhood trauma to unpack there. Um, but spaghetti on the wall, it's messy, but you, you got to go through the process and you can't just make this long-term commitment on something random. You got to try some different things. You got to try a bunch of mini projects before you know whether they are successful in connecting with your people, whether they're successful in making that consistent value, whether they're successful in potentially pushing the needle forward on the quest you're on. And I, and, and, and you need to actually make the stuff, not just think about making it to get any of the raw data of if it's actually going to work. And once you're doing that, you're going to, you're going to bet on those question marks. We talked about this in a recent episode, this idea of the BCG growth matrix, where you're looking for those things where there is high growth in a market, things that are happening right now and investing time into those by trying it yourself, you know, learning how to screen print, learning how to tell a story, you know, learning how to make a podcast. Like those are the kinds of things that I threw spaghetti on the wall with. And you have to do that before you know where to allocate more resources of time and longer term commitments and money is what you want to do is you want to shoot out a bunch of different ways and see what you can hit. And then once you've hit something, hit a target, then you can focus your energy and invest in a longer term plan. That's what we're going to talk about next. All right. Number five, once you have hit a few targets, once you're like, okay, that direction is where I need to get my cannon out and fire. That's when it's time to practice in your own sandbox. Oh, sandbox. And when I say sandbox, I mean creating something consistent in value for your audience directly off of 
Instagram sandbox or TikTok sandbox or YouTube sandbox, finding a place where you can set up a creative habit that people can subscribe to directly and cannot get hidden behind an algorithm. I'm a strong believer that in order for you to thrive as a creative person, you are going to have to take the means of connecting with your audience into your own hands. And this is nothing new. You know, people like the Grateful Dead, they had a mailing list. They had direct access to their audience so that the rules of the game couldn't be changed overnight and they just all of a sudden their complete practice disappears in a second. And that happens to people when they build their castle and other people's sandbox. And so once you have like, this is the direction I'm trying to go, I recommend creating a sandbox practice. You know, if you're telling stories, maybe it's a podcast. If you have, if you're a writer, maybe it's an email or a sub stack. If it's videos, uh, you're on YouTube, maybe it's a Patreon. I think Patreon does a really good job of making it possible for you to connect directly with your audience. And in that space, this is your test kitchen. This is your comedy club. This is with the people that are subscribing. They want to hear everything that you do. They don't just need your best stuff. They're not just going to be happy to hear the new single when it's on the radio. They want to know the second you're working on it and they want to hear the early versions of it. This is your, this sandbox is where you play. That's your test kitchen and you need to make it a habit and you need to make it something that you do uh, on a regular basis, which is called a habit. (laughs) That's what that is. And I'll give you one little tip. I've been um, revisiting Atomic Habits by James Clear. It's a phenomenal book. Uh, I think building disciplined habits was one of the hardest things that I ever learned how to do. And it's still really challenging if I try to find a new habit, but it is the thing that has made both my creative practice as well as my personal life. You know, whether it's an exercise of running every other day, three miles or doing this podcast once a week or before this podcast, I was making a character every day for a year or whatever it was that Playing that sandbox isn't enough. You have to practice the play. You have to dedicate yourself to the discipline of it. And one tip from Atomic Atomic Habits, um, Atomic Habits that I thought was really great was it starts with identity change. And so identity change looks like you're much more likely to quit smoking if you don't say, I'm trying to quit smoking and you instead embody the identity of someone, change your identity to someone who says, I want to be a healthy person. I am a healthy person. I am not a smoker. And so when someone offers you one, you don't say, I'm trying to cut back or I'm trying to get that out of my life. You say, I'm not a smoker anymore. That's not who I am. And so what is the identity that you're trying to embody? If you're trying to embody the identity of being a writer, All you need to do is write. If you write regularly, if you write with discipline, you will be a writer. If you want to make videos, if you want to make short form comedy content and be a comedian, all you have to do is make comedy. And in order to actually get to a place where someone pays you to do it, you have to embody that identity before they affirm it in you. 
And actually in that book, they go into the research that says like embodying the identity before you go to form the habit is ideal. It's not just, oh, I just want to lose some weight. And so I'm going to do this for six months. That's way, way harder than thinking I am a healthy person. What would a healthy person do? And, and also it helps you get realistic about it. Every habit that I've ever made, if I thought this is something I'm trying to do for a short period of time to get short term results, it's very hard for myself to really identify with that enough to be consistent with it. But it's also so unrealistic because it's saying, oh, I can do anything for six months, but you really can't. And the game changers for me were saying, okay, I want to be a healthier person. What is a habit that I could realistically see myself doing for the rest of my life because it's who I am? And so I think that identity component is really powerful. All right, number six. So once you have a practice, once you have practiced enough to be able to deliver on that consistent value on a regular basis, like you need to have a sense of the craft of it. Now, I'm a big believer that there needs to be art too. I heard recently someone told me that uh, Rick Rubin, he, he breaks down craft and art. Craft is a thing where you know the process, you know how to get the result. Art is something where you start and you don't know where it's going to lead. And for me, I think the best things are somewhere in the middle. They are one part strategy and outline and one part improv, one part craft, one part art. And, and you need a sense of that craft I think it's it's a healthy thing to really learn the rules, really, really go in a season of time where you're in that practice, understanding the mechanics and the gears of how to achieve the end you're trying to do. And then once you really can do it the formulaic way, and, and it's really fun to do it when you really can do that, then it's time to start breaking it all apart and letting some of that formula just become muscle memory. And then you can actually play the game in real time and you can switch hands and try different things and, and react in the moment as things kind of happen unexpectedly. Um, I think that's really important. Okay. So once you can do that, then number six is to find 10 true fans. After all, I am your biggest fan. Now, 10 true fans. We've talked about 100 true or 1,000 true fans that Kevin Kelly talked about where you get 1,000 people paying you 100 bucks a year. That's $100,000 before tax and, and expenses and all that. And that's a, that's a dang good place to start, right, for, for a creative practice. But even, for, even, even before the 1,000 people, you know, I think you could focus on 10 true fans, you know, first of all, lots of businesses have to do this. When you first open a restaurant, in order to get the ball rolling, you can't just wait for people to come in one at a time, spending 10 bucks a visit. You might have to go cater to corporate events. You might have to do events in your restaurant and do birthday parties and get those bigger ticket items, those bigger sales, those 10 fans that can pay your bills for the year before you get the relationships that can drip in the kind of income that you need. And the same goes for illustration. Maybe there is a day where you can make a living selling your books to thousands of people. But before you do that, you might just need 
10 people that are crazy about your work enough to give you projects in those bigger budgets that can help you cover your bases. And so even if you are a filmmaker, you need those 10 fans, you need those 10 producers that you have to sell the film to or sell it to the actor that's going to help you go sell the film to other people. You got to have, you got to convert those 10 fans. And if you focus on those 10 right people and making those relationships, those are, that's, that can become the seed, not just to an incredible creative practice, but to a movement. And I've been really interested in this idea of this a thousand true fans recently, not just as a means of having a successful or thriving creative practice that you can build your work on, but as the seed to a even bigger, greater thing, not just in terms of finances or money or your own personal practice, but real positive change that you want to see in the world. And if you look at the the movements that have changed culture, a lot of times they start in these little places, you know, things like D&D, Dungeons and Dragons, the first booklet that they created, it just had a thousand copies, a thousand customers. And that turned into this massive thing, this thing that's become a kind of movement. And I looked into like, what does it mean to have a movement in society? And uh, one of the figures that came up is just 3.5% of a population is big enough to create a cultural movement. Then I looked up, what is 3.5% of America? And it said it's 11 million people. And I thought, well, what are the things that I would consider a movement um, for good and for bad and different in between? I would say, you know, one that we've seen in recent years is Joe Rogan listeners and the massive impact that he has had on people in this country. It's why people get upset and worried about things that he says, because they know it's a movement. And so when he endorses or talks crap about a politician, it makes a difference in the elections because it's a movement. And so I had looked up that 3.5% of America, 11 million people. Guess how many Joe Rogan listeners there are? 11 million. And you go look at Taylor Swift. That's a movement in our culture, a particular mindset of a huge group of people. And guess how many sales she had in her biggest album, 1989, 11 million sales. Now, I think there's an argument even go back to her first album. And if you look at all the figures, you can find um, probably 11 million people. There was even probably a tipping point then. But I'm not interested in proving any particular set of math or data. I'm just trying to say that if you can find those 10 true fans that can bet on your work, either through client projects or events, just bigger ticket items that they can believe in what you're doing, you can get up and running long enough. You can keep the doors open enough to drip out to those thousand customers. And if you do that right, if you make that Dungeons and Dragons booklet interesting enough 30 years later, you might have created a whole movement that changes culture, that spawns TV shows like Stranger Things, that spawns enormous box office success like the Dungeons and Dragons movies or movie, the new movie. And so once you have practice in the sandbox, the next thing is to go 
target out and find those 10 true fans that could make a difference, that could turn into 1,000 true fans, that could turn into 11 million people who even change culture. And I, and I hope you do, because I know a lot of the people that listen to this show, and I wish there were more movements from people like you. All right. Once you got 11 million fans, here's what you need to do. That's that's not what I mean. Probably not a lot of us are going to ever have created a movement. But once you have picked up some serious steam and you've maybe got those thousand true fans and you're you're in an interesting place where you're going to find is all of the different spaghetti on the wall, practice in the sandbox, uh, big clients that you work with and events and then all the customers you sell individual stuff to, you're doing all these different things. You're going to get to a place where it's working, but you're breaking down because you are buckling under the pressure of spinning all of those plates. And if that's where you are, where it's generally working, maybe it's not windfalls of crazy amounts of cash, but it's generally working and you're getting somewhere. The seventh thing that you're going to have to do is prune the dogs. They're beginning to prune. We talked about that BCG matrix, the idea that sometimes you're going to have bet on a dog. You're going to have bet on a thing that you're doing that's not in a market that's growing, that you don't have a market share in. It's just weighing you down. You're spending 80% of your effort for 20% of your profit and you got to cut those things out. And um, that's a very difficult thing. It's a very difficult thing for me. We've talked about it in shows previously where it's kind of like there are going to be things. There are going to be engines that get you off the ground. You know, it might even been those events that you used to do that kept the lights on with those 10 true fans that you just can't afford the energy because it doesn't pay off. Those are the things that got your ship, your rocket off the ground, but it's not going to get the thing that gets you into orbit. And just like a multi-stage rocket, you're going to have to let that engine fall to the ground. You're going to have to let it fall off and get the parachute and, you know, make sure it has a safe landing so it doesn't destroy your whole ship in the process. But you have to let go of some of the things and those things that got you off the ground, you're probably going to be most romantic about. And so if you're in that place where you just can't keep going at the speed and at the rate, doing all the different things that you're doing, you're in a place where the most crucial thing you need to do is do less. ton of stuff this time. So I'm just going to go through it again. Uh, we talked about the seven crucial stages of a thriving creative practice, and we tried to give some order to them. You know, there's no perfect formula. Sometimes you're going to get 
to number three and have to go back to number two or go to four and go back to one. Like there, there's a lot of, um, forward and backward movement throughout these, or you might do them in slightly different order, but I tried to make an effort to make them as sequential as possible. And so here they are. The first one is have a main quest. If you don't have a main quest, get one. Connor just replaced me saying that with Woody from Toy Story 1. I did. But if you don't have a main quest, your main quest is to find your main quest. Uh, number two is consistent value. What is the value? What's the feeling that you want to get really, really good at producing in your audience? If you get really, really good at that, you can have a thriving creative practice even after you're no longer fashionable. There are plenty of musicians out there that got really, really good at producing a certain kind of vibe, a certain kind of emotion that never hit the radio or even went off the radio and still tour and connect with people that want to feel that particular feeling. The third one is find your people. If you know the kind of value you want to produce, you need to find the people that know how to produce that value and get time around them because it will rub off on you. The fourth one is once you have a sense of your the value and the people you're around and you need to start trying things, start throwing spaghetti on the wall. Number five is once you have thrown some spaghetti on the wall and you got one of those strands that actually stuck, you're going to take that strand and you're going to go put it in the sandbox. Now it's getting extremely disgusting. Spaghetti in a sandbox. Oh, gosh, that's just disgusting. But you need to take that and you start playing you need to start a practice a habit doing that thing over and over until you get really good at it till you make a name for yourself in that as someone who does that and you need to do it in a place where the algorithm can't stop you anymore and number six once you've done that you need to start focusing on the people that in your sandbox, in the place where you want to play, have the ability, have the resources to fund your practice to at least keep the lights on. That's 10 true fans. You invest in them until you can get a thousand true fans and until you can turn that into a bigger movement of some sort. And then once you are on your way to doing that and you are, it's working, but you're not, it's not working for you anymore. The seventh thing you got to do is prune. You got to get rid of the things that are holding you back. Got to get rid of the dead weight that got you off the ground, but isn't getting you any further. All right, that's it. Massive thanks to Yoni Wolf and the band Y for our theme music and soundtrack. Thanks to Connor Jones of Pinning Beautiful for editing the show and sound design. Thank you to Ryan Appleton, Katie Chandler, and Sophie Miller for podcast assistance of all kinds and sorts. And until we speak again, stay pepped up. Stay pepped up.